0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 334 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hi, everybody. And Jeremy Green. Hey, hey. And I'm Ruven Lerner. And this week, we're going to be talking about working across borders, working across different countries, um, and the fun and excitement and challenges that can ensue from doing that.
1: This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. it automatically scrubs passwords and secure information and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io.
0: So you guys are both based in the US, just to double check, right? Correct. All right. And so I'm, uh, as many listeners know, I'm based in Israel. But as you can tell from my serious Israeli accent, um, I was originally from the United States, grew up there, moved to Israel when I was 25. Um, and so I have U.S. citizenship, I also have Israeli citizenship, but my, my company is based in Israel. Um, and so we're going to talk about like different issues that might crop up either when you're working outside of your country – uh, well, I guess outside, outside your own country. And I know many of our listeners are from the U.S., but we have many listeners elsewhere as well. So this will hopefully be useful and interesting, enlightening, and maybe even amusing if we tell some of our exciting stories about cross-border snafus. So <laughs> let's uh, – which, which are like – happen all the time. So let's, let's start with like, I guess, simple stuff, which is um, if you're doing consulting work, like contract development or writing or something – and someone comes to you from another country. Um, how is that different from someone who's in your own country? How do you treat it differently? How do you work on it differently? How do you communicate differently? Um, Let's we'll start there, I guess.
2: So in my case, with hit subscribe, we do a fair bit of this um, in maybe the the easiest possible way, which is hit subscribe. Um, it's not custom application development. Um, we're usually engaging in fairly informal terms, like you know, you pay for a month's worth of blog posts and we deliver those. And um, during the course of that, we have had customers, clients um, in Australia, Israel, uh, New Zealand, a number of EU countries, so a lot of different places. And I'm trying to think of uh, – it so in the simplest case, almost nothing is – different there in terms of like contracts or anything like that, because we really kind of mostly avoid that. Um, we will sign contracts that um, clients either here or overseas have um, with a careful review, but often we don't, you know, bother with that. Um, and I guess the biggest thing that we wind up having to worry about there, and, you know, maybe sort of the ground floor and thinking of these things is uh, payment. Because, Options typically go out the window, like, you know, a lot of your clients, if you're in the U.S., may pay you via check through the U.S. mail or they do some kind of like ACH bank deposit um, that gets a little more complicated uh, with um, international transactions. So from a financial perspective, we find ourselves on the receiving end of lots of wires, wire transfers and um, uh, PayPal and services like that. And there are some others I forget. There was a really good one we were using for a while. Anyway, I'll see if I can look it up at some point. But so I guess I'm saying maybe the the first fundamental thing you've got to be thinking about is um, payment. Like, uh, how is that going to work? And then if there are contracts involved, I would say um, that's going to get interesting because you have to think about, um, you know, where is the contract any dispute going to be adjudicated you know what sort of enforcement vehicles are there and i'll maybe seed the floor on that one because i don't have a lot of experience with managing uh, overseas contracts
0: so i can tell you that um i mean i've done it for a good number of years and i basically throw up my hands expecting anything serious to happen with those contracts i mean <laughs> you know if i signed with someone in the u.s um with my israeli company and something goes wrong and they're going to sue me. First of all, it's, they're not going to sue me. And second of all, what? Like then I'm going to like, we, we could fight over where the jurisdiction is, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in the U S where in the U S and so forth. Generally, I'll just cede that to them, whatever they want, just because mm. I who cares if it comes down to anything, I'll just give them the money because the moment that I step on a plane, it's like thousands of dollars in flight hotel, opportunity cost, and so forth. Um, I mean, I think I seem to remember once having a client where we were both so amused by the fact that we need to come with a jurisdiction that we actually chose London because it was halfway between the two of us. But of course, this was like <laughs> you know, even more absurd <laughs> than you would typically want.
2: <laughs> Did you ever need to go to London for that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, as you guys know, I'm I like I'm in London now giving a course, but it has nothing to do with legal troubles. Uh, I mean, the only legal problems I've had that actually I never had to go court with, with were, were all in Israel, and they were locally. So, um, yeah, yeah, no. So I just I, that's the thing that I'm first and most willing to give up on, um, even though it, it potentially could be really big. Um, maybe I just, especially now that I've moved more into training. Uh, It's like, so I I have one client and we'll talk about this a little bit, but like, I'm I'm starting to move into the US market. And so I've started to, uh, like be reading and going over and signing contracts with US companies. And US companies, um, like are very strict in terms of like, if I am giving training, I still need to provide crazy amounts of insurance. And I remember joking with my insurance agent I think the only danger I am to these people is that I'll bore them to death during my lecture. Like, what am I going to do? Come in with an ax and murder all of my students? Like, what are they really worried about? But they do tend to worry a lot. And so there'll, there'll be lots and lots of fine print in the contract about exactly this sort of thing.
2: So I think I think some of the requirements to carry insurance is less worried about what you're going to do and more about what might happen to you, um, like if you get injured on site there somehow. Uh, again, I'm bit, no expert in this, but but I think that's what they're going for with things like general liability or whatever. Is I don't know. Is that common in other countries, those those types of insur- insurance requirements?
0: So I'll, I I have literally never had any sort of professional insurance in Israel in my 25 years of being in business, and no one has ever asked me for it. I mean, and I go into big companies like I've worked with Apple and IBM and Cisco and so forth. And none of them in Israel ever required it. It was only when I started doing stuff with Cisco internationally that they started requiring it. And it was only like when I started dealing with these U.S. companies that they started, quite frankly, even checking on it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's when I started looking into what I needed to get. And it turns out that the insurance that they wanted simply does not exist in Israel. Like, it, like, it's just, <laughs> or actually, it simply does not exist outside of the United States. I wish I could remember exactly what the, the description is. It's like general something, something, something demonstrating my, my great knowledge of the subject of insurance. But basically without so, – so I like – at first I sort of panicked and I looked into getting it. I spoke with an insurance agent who said, well, it doesn't exist outside the U.S. What I can do is I can give you insurance that's sort of kind of almost like what you need, that if you squint in the right way, it will appear to be the right thing and it's probably good enough for their purposes, but it's going to cost you. So this, like, I think it's general liability and something or other. Okay, I'm getting like one word at a time here every few minutes. So basically, I did get the insurance that he suggested. But just for comparison's sake, he said, and I even checked, this insurance would cost me somewhere around 500 $600 a year in the U.S. It cost me more than $3,000 in Israel uh, to purchase. Um, and once I got that, then the company was like, okay, this is good enough. And I said, wait a second. You need to change your master services agreement because it says that I'm going to get insurance. I think they wanted like up to $2 million of liability. Um, and I said, well, mine is only for $1 million. Can we change the MSA? Or can you give me a letter saying that my insurance is sufficient for your purposes? And they said no. And <laughs> my interpretation and my insurance agent's interpretation of this was their legal team, their insurance team, wasn't willing to officially say Yes, what I had was good enough, but they realized that I jumped through a lot of hoops and they were willing to look the other way. But it's quite possible that if something happened, they would point to a breach of contract or God knows what. Again, the odds of something happening are so, so slim that I'm just not going to worry about it very much. Um, And even, truth be told, if I were to slip somewhere, I don't think I would sue them anyway because I I just like, I can't imagine doing that. But um, you need to have it, like I need to show them a certificate of insurance in order to even make the contract go forward. And here's a sad coda to the uh, story. So I got this insurance, but I got it too late to have the training that we had agreed upon on the date we would agreed upon. So I lost out on a lot of money for that, but wait, it's worse. Um, the, the, The guy said, look, I feel really bad about this, so I'll make sure that you can do two trainings in 2019. So I kept calling him back from like the first or second week in 2019, every week or two, saying, so what's going on? He would say, well, our budget's not decided. Our budget's not decided. I'm really sorry. And then later on, he said, well, the budget, it's it's close to decided, and you're only going to do one training. And then I finally spoke to him a few weeks ago, like two, three weeks ago. He said, oh, I guess you didn't read the news. Our profits were down dramatically. Our CEO was tossed out on his ear, and training budgets and all other budgets are slashed or frozen. So it's not happening. So... Wow. So there went Man. my $3,000 supporting the poverty-stricken insurance uh, industry. Um, <laughs> I, I, will, I will add, by the way, um, that my one little win on this was their uh, MSA required that I also have car insurance. And um, I was warned about this by some friends, actually. And so I wrote down the MSA or my comments, I will not be driving a car anytime when I'm giving your training Like, I go by public transportation or better yet, I get a hotel room within walking distance. Um, And they – so I actually had two companies where I've dealt with this recently. One of them agreed to remove the car insurance requirement. The other said, we actually don't like to change our MSA. So we're not going to change it, but we will put it in the statement of work um, that we're going to waive it for this particular thing. So (laughs) car insurance, like, really? Yeah, that's weird. So, yeah. Do you, do you, like, what sort of insurance do you guys have, actually? And and would you even, like, would it cover you if you were to work with someone, like, if you were to fly abroad and, and use it or, or do some work?
2: Ooh, um For me, in the consulting I've done, I've only ever carried any insurance briefly, like, for a particular engagement and then canceled it. Um, maybe errors and omissions and general liability, I'm, I'm trying to think. But I don't regularly carry any kind of professional insurance like that. Um With hit subscribe, uh, we might look at. Oh, I forget what it is, but there's some kind of, you know, related to trademark or copyright, there's some kind of uh, insurance you can carry. It's not, it's on my radar to look into it, but we haven't done that yet. So, you know, I'm I'm a little fast and loose when it comes to insurance. I'll do it for a sufficiently large enterprise contract. But beyond that, um, I'll just say no. And I think if it were to come up in a situation where I didn't really care that much if I got an engagement or not, I would just say like, look, you know, go find someone else. I'm not, you know, picking all this stuff up just for your MSA.
3: Yeah. I don't carry any as a general rule either. And it'd have to be a, a very interesting and lucrative project, I think, for me to want to jump through all those hoops. There's been a time or two in the past where I've uh, investigated it when uh, submitting a proposal for something where they you know, said that was a requirement, um, but then never got far enough with those particular uh, proposal processes that I ended up purchasing any insurance.
0: Yeah, I thought I I, I, I waited to get the insurance until I thought it was clear. But Oh, well, <laughs>
2: I think for like people out there listening to this is I remember talking to somebody recently and in the US, um, it was somebody who was kind of bemoaning the existence of like a staffing placement agency or Robert Half or something saying, you know, I'm, I'm earning 65 bucks an hour, they're billing out at 100 bucks an hour, I have no idea what they're doing, you know, it seems like a ripoff or whatever. And I said, one of the things that they're doing is worrying about all this nonsense with insurance and stuff so that you can just show up and write code. Um, so in the U.S., I think those types of like, you know, matchmaking or placement agencies will worry about a lot of stuff for you. If you're a freelancer out there.
0: I'm sure you're right. I'm hundred percent sure you're right. Um, and part of it is also just sort of like, so people like me who salivate at, U.S. sort of consulting fees and, and so forth, forget that a lot of it is because, like, you make more, but you also have more expenses. You have to deal with a lot more to this sort of paperwork. Um, and so, yeah, they're paying me a lot more than I would get in Israel, but I also have to put out a lot more in terms of attorney and uh, accountant and, and have, you know, insurance. Um, and I'm sure, by the way, that in many times, many times these companies don't care. Except that their insurance, like the insurance that they have for their own company, requires that anyone coming through their doors be insured with X and Y and Z. It's all a matter of like, you know, CYA.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I can testify to... um dealing with people, especially the people who are requisitioning the services or whatever it is I'm doing, they generally couldn't possibly care less. And they view all the stuff being foisted on them by their legal department or or compliance or whoever as a royal pain. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're often serving as a go-between saying like, yeah, it seems perfectly reasonable that you don't want to get car insurance just to come here without a car. Let me go back to the legal department and see what they say. Yeah
0: yeah okay
2: so um
0: what about i mean you you alluded to this a little bit but before eric like getting payments from other countries so like within your own country well first of all how do you guys get payments within the u.s let's start with that and then we'll we'll move up there
2: historically through my consulting with dead tech um that was usually i would get a check cut um and then with hit subscribe that's kind of a mix like um Some of our, depending on, you know, how much we're getting, we'll collect payment through PayPal, and we have a PayPal business where it's only a 50-cent fee. Um, We, I think some companies still do send paper checks, but that's not as common. We will get um, ACH transfers, which is like, they just put money into our checking um, through a transfer, and then wires, uh, which cost us money. So there's kind of a variety. It runs the gamut. We're set up to receive payments from Clients in most different ways that they want to do. Mm-hmm. And then if it's overseas, that pool gets limited to wire transfers. Um, and let's see, uh, payments through, I, I actually real quick looked this up. There are services, TransferWise and Zoom are a couple of services that help, I guess, grease the skids for payments between different countries. Uh, so we use those commonly and I should say that's both for receiving payments for clients and also to pay our subcontractors hit subscribe has something like 70 subcontractors and a lot of them are, you know, uh, all over the globe. So we, PayPal is good for that, but PayPal doesn't go everywhere. Like we had a subcontractor in Guatemala. So we used a service called zoom where you can send money to Guatemala, uh, even though PayPal couldn't for some reason. Really? Um,
0: huh. I sort of yeah. thought PayPal was everywhere to be told just about everywhere.
2: I think it's pretty universal. Like we were surprised when that came up, it was new to us that, Hey, there's this, um, you know, uh, kind of loophole or whatever in PayPal's coverage.
1: This episode is sponsored by Paymo. You can check them out at paymoapp.com and they are a terrific tool for tracking projects, keeping track of time and sending out invoices. So if you're looking for a solution, that's sort of an all-in-one solution that allows you to do all of those things, to keep track of time, manage tasks, get paid as a freelancer, then check it out. If you're part of a larger team, they also have a team solution that allows you to manage projects across everybody, track all the time across everybody, and then send out the invoices the same way. It runs on Windows and Mac, and it works really, really great. You can get the task management view that's kind of like a Trello board. The time tracking is terrific, and you can look at uh timesheet view, You can also just keep track of the time and see where everything went to. Um, There is a terrific uh, timesheet report and you can also work on scheduling with your team and everything else. And then, like I said, you just send out invoices. Plus, they've got a terrific API so that if you need to integrate with other things like the Adobe Creative Suite or G Suite, which is uh, email and things like that, uh, you can do that too. And it also uses Zapier. So if you need to automate things through there, it's terrific. Just go check them out at paymoapp.com.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I used to get a lot of checks. Like even in Israel for a long time, I would get checks. You know, so I would get dollar checks for my U.S. clients and hill checks from my Israeli clients. and I would go and deposit them and so forth. And Israelis moved away from checks, I don't know, a good 10 years ago. You can still get them, um, but it's pretty rare, especially for businesses to do it. Everyone just does bank transfers. Um, yeah. And so when I started dealing with my US clients and talking about bank transfers, um, I had one client in particular where they had, like, they used to send checks to me in the mail. And this was the first time they had ever sent mail outside the US. So then when I raised the possibility <laughs> of sending a money abroad, they were like, ooh, we got to check into this. And they discovered that their bank actually gave them some small number, like five or 10, I guess five or eight, um, international wire transfers for free every month. Nice. So that was a pleasant surprise for all of us. And so now they just do a wire transfer through uh, um, Swift and it comes. And typically, like people in the US have accounts and they are dollar accounts. People abroad, at least people in Israel, have accounts in lots of different currencies. So I have a shekel account and I have a dollar account. And so it comes with my dollar account and then I just have to you know, move it over and turn it into shekels whenever I want. Um, so that's actually not so much of an issue. PayPal um has been a pain actually. Um just in that they take a fairly amount a fairly large service fee, relatively speaking. Yeah. <laughs> and then like when I want to transfer into my account in checklists, they have a terrible rate. And they're like, oh, and there's no there's no uh fee. Yeah, there's no fee for turning into uh, sending my bank account, but you do take a week and you give me a terrible rate. Um and so PayPal is just not that common as well. Most people do either bank transfers or use credit cards. Um, and so I was delighted, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit. Like basically, when I set up a US company, the first thing I did was sign up for Stripe. And now I accept Stripe payments, and wow, it is so much better in every possible way. I will add that we're now recording in early June. Um, in early May, PayPal changed a whole bunch of policies. One of which is if you give someone a refund, you do not like you eat the the PayPal fee. So, wow. like, so let's say someone buys a course from me for hundred dollars, and they're like, "Nah, don't want it. Can you refund my money?" And I've always been like, "Yes, absolutely, hundred percent money bank guarantee on all my courses." So, let's say I don't know PayPal for the argument's sake took five dollars. I forget exactly what the number would be. So they would get the hundred dollars back, and I would be out five dollars as a result. Uh, so I was really ticked off about this, and so the, the signing up for Stripe could not have come at a better time from my perspective. <laughs>
2: i might go look into stripe for hit subscribe because that's really interesting and i did not know that about paypal we don't process much in the way of refunds but like that would be pretty annoying um i do know that when it comes to accepting payments like i'm trying to think we had a number of i have a number of clients in israel and those payments typically come in via wire and at least in the U.S., if you're accepting wires, I think either domestically or internationally, um, fees are almost unavoidable. I've dealt with this with two or three banks now. And both incoming and outgoing, you get hit. Um, some of these services, like the the ones I was alluding to before, it's not as bad. But if we could maybe do this, can do you know if we can accept, um, if we set up a U.S.-based Stripe account, can we accept international payments?
0: Well, well, Stripe is basically, so far as I know, I've only been using it this way for accepting credit card payments. Um, mm-hmm. So, but it's, I, I would not be surprised because they're trying to be all payments for all people. So I would not be surprised if there's something with Stripe where you can just like give them a URL or give them something and they send you the payment through that. I mean, I've been using Stripe for all of, like two weeks now. So I'm totally new to it and I'm still exploring it, but I have to assume they allow that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, you can take credit card payments from more or less anywhere in the world with somebody that has a you know, credit card number that they can type into Stripe.
2: That's interesting. I'm going to have to give that a look. And actually, oh. the, the, um, the the subject of um, taking these payments reminded me, too, that, like, uh, oh, shoot, what was I going to say? Sorry, I was making notes about wanting to try Stripe. (laughs) Never mind if I think of it, I'll let you know.
3: Uh, So Reuven, one thing I'm curious about, uh, when you are dealing with U.S. companies or really any any company outside of Israel, uh, when you are getting paid, do you ever find yourself kind of watching currency markets and trying to, you know, time payments so that, you know, you get a favorable exchange rate, you know, like looking for the dollar to go down or something. Um, no, uh, no? Okay.
0: I've totally, I mean, I've totally given up on that. There were times when I would say, well, it looks like it's going up. It looks like it's going down. Maybe I should do it. And, and like, it's just not worth it. It's just like, I'm sure like if i were making millions of dollars from this stuff, then it would be worth it for me to hire someone who maybe could suggest how to do it and hedge my bets. Like, you know, airlines buy futures, in oil or futures in dollars so that they can hedge their bets on the price of gasoline going up or down. And Mm -hmm. so, but like, I'm such a small fry at the end of the day, it's a few dollars here. It's a few dollars there. It goes up it goes down. I figure over time it'll sort of average out.
3: Yeah. And, and the two main currencies that you deal with are relatively stable, right? Yeah. Yeah. The the shekel and
0: dollar. I mean, the shekel now is I think like, oh, let me just look it up. But I think it's like 3.7 shekels to the dollar. Um, and it's been somewhere between like 3.5 and 3.8 for the last few years. Mm-hmm. So it's really not that big of a difference. I mean, whereas like, as I said, I'm in London. I just met my cousin here last night and she was saying, oh my God, the pound is like <laughs> dropping like a stone. So uh, there are currencies where it's much a much bigger deal and there are much more fluctuations.
3: Hmm. Yeah. So I guess if, if, you were dealing with one currency or the other that were more volatile that might be more of a concern for you than it is since they're both fairly stable is right that right fair to mean, say? yes
0: absolutely it used to be actually okay. back after israel's hyperinflation days like through the early 90s mid 90s many people would say okay i'm going to charge you the shekel equivalent of such and such in dollars um, and so everything was basically dollar-based, even though we were working in check And at a certain point, the government said, look, folks, the currency is stable. Stop it. And they outlawed charging in dollars. Uh, and that, like, <laughs> all of a sudden, now everyone charges in check and no one thinks anything of it.
2: Well, so that's interesting. Because, for- like, um, if I think about what we do is hit subscribe, I send out invoices in dollars and I get back that amount in dollars. So it's like, I, whether on purpose, I mean, we just send our invoices the way we do, but we've kind of like externalized that whole concern. So it doesn't matter to me how other currencies are against the dollar. Cause if we send out a $3,000 invoice, we get $3,000. Oh, you know what, though, yeah, no, this...
0: Ger- Jeremy, I just realized though, I did, I did do it at one point where one of my clients where I was doing some uh, like online courses for their people in the U S so they were paying me in dollars I said, "Look, you got to start paying." Like this was, I guess, like two years ago already, when the shekel was really low against the dollar. I said, "Look, uh, it's really shifted. Can can you like increase the amount I'm being paid?" And they said, "Yes," and they were very nice about it. Um, and I mean, now that it's it's shifted a little bit in my favor, I haven't said anything, but it's it, it's pretty stable. It hasn't changed that that much.
3: Cool. So for, you know, people that are listening that may be you know working across borders uh is there sort of any general advice here i mean i i kind of suspect that for the most part you want to bill and get paid in your local currency just f- for your own kind of stability purposes and knowing what that amount of money is going to be so that you know you don't have to take on the kind of money market speculation of Worrying about if you're dealing with some other currency,
0: um, I don't know. Like I think most people in international business use the dollar or maybe the euro if they really want.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, like mm-hmm. those are
0: the two big ones. And so if you're in a smaller country that doesn't have, or I guess the pound, right? And so if you're in a smaller country without its own with with, with its own currency, and you're a little worried about the volatility. I mean, I guess you can hedge your bets a little that way, but I think most people would just charge in dollars, in part because not doing that. Like, let's say I were to charge in, I don't know, you know, Swedish kroner, right? So then imagine my online, like, I would have to be updating my prices all the time with my online products and with my courses, and this would drive all of my international clients completely batty. <laughs> huh?
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess I've taken it for granted that we just send invoices and payments and whatnot in dollars and don't have to think it through. But I guess, yeah, if if um, I were dealing with a currency that was, you know, less commonly used by far than the dollar, I'd probably, you know, have to come to the clients and maybe even subcontractors in their own currency. Um, But if I think about just kind of my general life as a consumer, occasionally um, I will buy, you know, some software service or something from an organization that lists prices in Euro. And I don't really think too much of that. I kind of do a quick lookup to see what that is. And then I give a credit card and I know how many dollars it's going to be. So I guess my advice to anyone would be, you know, if you can send invoices in your currency and see what happens. Right.
0: Well, I guess for info products, you probably can pull that off and maybe there's like a converter where you'll show it off, but like dealing with B2B consulting, they might they, they might not be so thrilled, right? Like, does, <laughs> does, does the attorney or the accountant at uh, your client really want to have to be dealing with, um, wait, you know, what is this currency and how many are we getting and how are we paying in that?
2: Yeah, I guess for an enterprise-type client, it just becomes yet another negotiation point.
0: Right. By the way, I'll add, like, as you guys know, I do a lot of work with China and I've been, I'm probably putting together a Chinese company actually to sell my online courses there. And part of the reason is that they don't have credit cards. They don't have PayPal. Um, and so for people in China to pay me and to buy my stuff is very difficult. Um, and I actually talked to Podia, the um, platform I use for selling my online stuff, about maybe they can integrate WeChat and Alipay payments, uh, like which is super, super common in China. And they... <laughs> <laughs> they, they were very polite about it, but basically said, we'll look into this, but we don't expect to do it anytime soon. Um, and so you have you know literally a billion people, a billion and a half people there who potentially could pay, but like you have a real barrier in terms of the currency and, and uh, techniques. Um, what do you guys do in terms of sales tax? Um, and I'm curious sir, what you do in terms of sales tax in the U.S., and then we can turn this on its head and deal with like outside the U.S. and VAT and international stuff on that front.
2: So in the U.S. and going outside of the U.S., um, I've everything I've always done has been like services, productized services, and there's no sales tax because I'm not selling a physical good of any kind. Um, we deal with different, and I'm sure this is true of you too as well, Jeremy, right? Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, so that's just kind of how the U.S. tax code is structured. We're certainly paying tax on that income, um, whether as individuals or a corporation, depending on how you've incorporated. But unless you're selling like retail goods, you know, um, there's no concept of sales tax for services. So oh, really? that's easy oh. for us. Mm-hmm. That. Yeah. yeah, we I, we pay that on the back end, so to speak. Um, so it doesn't get passed on to our consumers if it's uh, services. Our income gets taxed as the business or individuals.
0: Okay, okay, got it. So, right, I mean, so the way, so Israel has, like many uh, countries except for the US, has um, a sales tax known as VAT, value added tax. And mm-hmm. it works halfway like sales tax in the US and halfway totally the opposite. Um, <laughs> and when I say it's the opposite, it's so here's how it works, right? If you, so let's say my company, buys, I don't know, a computer. So we, actually, let me, let me use a, a better, a, let, let me, let me uh, try a better example. So let's say I buy paper. And I, so I pay the, uh, you know, the local stationery store. And let's just say for argument's sake, it's, you know, $10. So I'm going to pay them $10. I then add to that VAT, value-added tax, which in Israel is 17%. That's right, you Americans who think you have high taxes. Ha! Anyway. <laughs> um, now, oh, the other thing is, by the way, um, here's another, like, like, dig at Americans. In other countries, the tax is included in the price. So when you get to the cash register, you're not surprised. Right? None mm. of this price plus tax. It's like, it must by law, it must be included. So mm. if the paper is $10, it's not $10 plus 17%. It's $10 including the 17%. So what happens then is I report to the Israeli government that I paid whatever it would be, you know, 17% of $10, um, or I guess including it in any event, I paid that much. And so I get that back. I get that back from the government because I paid the sales tax. Or I paid the VAT. However, when I then print a book on that paper and sell it to someone else for, let's say, $20, that has to include VAT. I get that and I have to turn it into the government. So I basically, I am the conduit for both receiving and se- sending it in. And so, I, and so at each turn, uh, businesses both pay that and get it back, but the end consumer just pays it. And so if you are buying things as a business, the most important thing you can do is get the receipt that shows that you paid that, Because then you show it to the government and you get the money back. So that's only true within your own country. So if I'm in Israel, I only have to deal with VAT inside Israel. If a company is elsewhere, totally like VAT-free. And my invoicing system, which is based in Israel, knows how to deal with that. But from what I understand, and I've only been able understand this a little bit, the EU a few years ago instituted something, and each EU country has its own VAT system, like percentage and so forth. My impression is that if you're selling these, I could be totally wrong here, if you're selling these, if you are based in the EU, and you're selling these anywhere in the EU, you have to collect VAT for that, like the EU country of your consumer and then send it into them or something like that. So if you're in the EU, you need to be worried about whether your platform knows how to deal with all this VAT stuff and find out where people are from. And again, this is only like – and I seem to remember that if you're like a US company with an EU-based platform, it gets complicated as well. So there's a lot to deal with there once you start – and it includes services, by the way. I was fascinated to hear you guys say that it does not include services in the US. That includes basically everything of like airline tickets I think and a few other things and yeah, I have a better
2: I... understanding at least of why when I've gone to like uh a couple of years ago I was in the UK and um, I-, I didn't really think too much of this but they said you know keep these receipts of yours uh, send them into this address and you'll get money back and sure enough the UK sent me like $160 to my home address like three months later so wow. now I understand that better why that happened because I'm not liable for VAT that there.
0: That's the right, only you're not
2: time. A so I've had a few contractors, subcontractors have hit subscribe, have come and said like, "What do we do about that?" And my response is basically like, "I don't know. I'm I'm paying you what you invoice us for. That's your problem." Um, which I actually looked up. That wasn't just me being flip it. It's um, for us to pay EU contractors that it um, there's no VAT footprint there. I guess. Um, that's something they have to worry about with their own income, but you know,
0: right, right. I mean, so like basically, once I deal with someone from outside of Israel, that just completely vanishes as something I have to worry about. Um, now I'll, uh, I'll I'll then add, so once I though, so I put up my online store, and my online store through Podia, like you know, does all the right things, but it does not handle that for Israel. It does for the EU. So now the fact is, how many of my customers are from Israel? Not very many, like a real, real, real tiny number. And of those, how many of them care about the VAT, like the special kind of receipt you have to get? Even fewer. But there was one. (laughs) And he contacted me and said, hey, I don't understand what's going on here. You sent me like because my booking system sends an automatic receipt. It didn't mark down that this included VAT. What the hey? What's going on? And basically, that was because um, like it's not configured to do that. So I checked with my accountant. He checked with his account. It was this whole rigmarole until finally we just said, you know what? It's just such a small amount of money. Let's hope no one notices. Um, I hope the VAT authorities are not listening to this podcast. But like, I mean, the VAT authorities like you don't mess with them. Like they really they can come and like take your house and other stuff if you don't listen. So. Um, so no, but it's it's great. Like um, ba- Basically, if you have a platform that deals with it, it works fine. And the U.S. company that I set up, one of the many advantages I now have with that is now I have that collect my income. And so I have to worry. It's like it's based in the U.S. And so that just, again, vanishes as an issue.
3: Yeah, I have one customer uh, of Remark from somewhere in the EU. I forget exactly where, um, that had contacted me asking about that uh, on the receipts. Um, and I said, you know, i in the US, I don't collect any VAT or have anything to do with that. And they asked if I could add a line item to the receipt that just shows VAT zero. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, uh, yeah, okay, sure. If that makes it easier <laughs> for you, I can do that. <laughs> so
0: i uh, will mention this the pics, but there's a fantastic book uh, by T.R. Reed about um, uh, taxes. And I know it sounds like, you know, watching paint dry or something is like incredibly boring. But it's actually fast. It's like a, a comparison of different countries and how their taxes work. And he has a whole chapter on that. And he says, basically, any country that does not charge VAT is missing out on like this incredible money machine. Um, <laughs> that like countries just get incredible amounts of income through VAT, especially because it's not mentioned. It's like part of the price. So people just pay it naturally and you just get it through virtually everything people buy. Hey
1: folks, I found a terrific tool for planning out your projects and setting timelines. It's actually terrific. If you've ever used a Gantt chart before, it's based on that, but it's got a whole lot of other great features. It's an interactive online project management tool for people who love planning with timelines and Gantt charts. The thing that I like about it is that I can actually plan things out and I can get a tentative timeline for what's going on. And then it's got a simple UI with drag and drop capabilities that make it really easy for me to adjust the timeline and it'll automatically adjust everything else based on what is dependent on what is dependent on what. And it's just, it's terrific. Um, So the the online process and learning curve are really, really short. It's a terrific fit for both individual freelancers and for teams. Project coordinators love the simple planning and other great features like workload, task assignments, deadlines, critical path, uh, baseline, Uh, Teams use it for online uh, collaboration, you can leave comments, you can attach files, you can send notifications, the whole nine yards. Um, It integrates with JIRA if you're using JIRA, but the other killer feature for me was that you can actually switch it over and you can see it in a Kanban board view, which is awesome. You can get a 14-day trial at ganttpro.com. You can also use their software development project template if that's what you're into. And that's at ganttpro.com slash software development dash plan dash template. And if you use the code devchat, you can get $50 off for using Gantt Pro. So go check it out at ganttpro.com.
0: All right. Well, so before we talking about taxes, so I've I, I mentioned already a few times I started this U.S. company. Why, besides using Stripe and besides dealing with the VAT stuff, did I do it? Because those are not sufficient reasons. The reason is that I'm going to start going on-site more to U.S. clients and give training there. And when I mentioned this to my accountant, he said, wait a second, where are you going? And it's so, so like, just back up. So in Israel, go somewhere, I charge them, that's fine. In Europe, if I go somewhere, I charge them, that's fine, right? And I pay taxes to Israel, not a big deal. And in China, for that matter, um, like, there is a little more complicated because I'm going to a training company. But at the end of the day, like, I get paid and it's fine. However, in the U.S., if you are on site somewhere... And if it even is not your own state, perhaps especially if it's not your own state, you owe taxes to the federal government and you owe taxes to the state government. And when my accountant heard that I was planning to be in California and in Oregon, he said, wait, we're going to have to file state taxes from your Israeli to the U.S. federal government and to these state governments. And he says, even if you don't owe taxes, you have to file with them. And he said, if it's above a certain amount, and I'll almost certainly make that amount this year. You should just open an American company because it will be way, way cheaper and less paperwork. Um, and so this has, on the one hand, dramatically complicated things. On the other hand, it has apparently simplified them and will save you some money. So, so I now have a Delaware corporation and a bank account. And it was surprisingly simple to set up. Um, I mean, my accountant has an agent in New York who deals with this, like a lawyer who sets it up on our behalf. And it like, cost me, I think, about $1,000 total for my accountant and the lawyer and everything. I know that's way more than it has to be, but I don't know anything about this. And we got it set up in like two days. Um, and I got a tax ID number. I, feel what's this, I think it's just tax ID. Maybe EIN. I might be getting that wrong. Uh, Synonyms. Oh, okay. Okay. And then I used that to set up a bank account. Um, and I, I found this thing called ASLO, A-Z-L-O, uh, which is an online only bank for more or less online entrepreneurs. And uh, within, I don't know, within like three, four days of signing up with them, they'd approved all my documents. And now I have a U.S. company and a U.S. bank account, hooked it up with Stripe uh, and it's all good. The only hitch with all of this, the biggest hitch was I tried signing up with Aslo and they said, great, welcome. Now I have to sort of pretend to be in the U.S. So, you know, I use my my parents' Philadelphia address and everything, Um, but I signed up and signed up with Aslo. They said, great. We'll send you an SMS or a text message just to verify that it's you. Well, um, U.S. companies don't really know that the rest of the world exists when it comes to phone numbers. And so there's (laughs) no way for me to enter my Israeli phone number in their text field. And I was using Skype for my U.S. phone calls, and Skype doesn't receive SMSs either. So I am now a happy new customer of phone.com which gives you a US (laughs) phone number and on your, you get an app that you put on your cell phone that you can receive US phone calls and SMSs. And then I went back to ASLO and I gave them my phone number and they SMSed me my like passcode or whatever. I entered that, they said, great, you're verified. We know that you exist. I went into my bank account and all is good. Nice. But it's like way more complicated than I would have expected but it's amazing this technology allows it to happen. Um, and now when I go to the U.S., so we'll have the, the U.S. Uh, uh, company sign for it. By the way, I'll just add one thing and I'll let you guys, like, go on more. Um, my accountant said that we're going to have to play some games with, like, which company does what. So, for so first of all, it's going to be like my Israeli company is going to be selling services to the U.S. company or something along those lines. He's going to figure mm-hmm. exactly how this works. Um, so that, like, and the U.S. company will have to pay salary because you can't have a company that doesn't get salary. but. We're also going to have to like deal with who pays for what. So for example, I go do training in the U S the U S that my client pays my U S company to my U S bank account. We file all the taxes. We do all the things we're supposed to do, but wait, I have to actually get there. Right? So who pays for the plane ticket? Well, if the U S company pays for the plane ticket, then I apparently can only deduct the amount from the company's home address in Philadelphia to wherever I'm going, say California. However, if my Israeli company pays for the plane ticket, then I can expense it all the way from Israel to California. So basically, my expense, I should check with him first and see which company should actually be dealing with this.
2: Uh, That sounds even more complicated than than me dealing with the U.S. government. And that has not been easy. (laughs) What, what,
0: What sort of problems have you had with the government? Or do you want to explain them all in front of thousands of listeners?
2: Figuring out you know, um, as a as the owner in a few different businesses and the taxpayer, figuring out what the best structure for those businesses is, figuring out where I can deduct which kinds of expenses. Like, the U.S. tax code is sort of notoriously overcomplicated. Um, and I was just thinking, you know, adding something else to the mix. Like, when you were talking about needing to file paperwork with Oregon and California, I was kind of like, and this is a testament to how complicated things are. I was like, is that right? Do, do you, you know, because... Um, as a U.S. service provider, I don't. Um, if I do services, uh, you know, if I go do an onsite in California, let's say, I don't do anything with the state of California. Uh, all that Michi- uh, income comes to my LLC in Michigan, and so I only deal with Michigan. So, uh, I guess just in general, it's it's a very complicated set of laws, and you know. Uh, you've got the wrinkle of um, kind of translating across borders to deal with on top of that.
0: Yeah, and add to that the fact that I'm a U.S. citizen, so we've had to balance out like as a citizen who has to pay then or at least file with U.S. income tax every year, make sure that – I mean it's just like it, – it, yeah, it's it's very good that I have an accountant who both is an expert in Israeli and in American taxes because it's getting very complex very fast.
3: Mm.
2: yeah.
0: Jeremy, anything, anything more on the, the the tax front that you might want to add?
3: No, I don't think so. Pay them when you're supposed to, so you don't get in trouble.
2: <laughs> right. Oh, you know, well, I did remember uh, <laughs> what I was going to say go. earlier. Uh, the you know, the, as something to bear in mind when you're dealing with um, international bank accounts or or so it's it's kind of a U.S. versus everyone else difference. Um, if you're a U.S. citizen and you start giving bank account information for like a direct deposit type of thing, um, any company or any country outside of the U.S., people are going to ask you for an IBAN and a SWIFT code. And those are just not things in the U.S. So whether you're outside of the U.S. or inside, understand that, that there's like a very different way of reconciling uh, basic bank information in and in, out of the U.S.
0: Well, wait a second. U.S. banks have SWIFT codes.
2: I don't think they do. I think they do something to translate it. Um, I could be wrong, but I get asked for that. And my bank says, like, am I wrong about this? Oh, no. Okay. So they do it. They do have Swift. They don't have IBAN. I see.
0: Right, right. IBAN is, uh, uh, I mean, Israel uses it. Europe uses it. It's basically faster, cheaper, and gets, gets around all sorts of nonsense that's involved in Swift. Like, you know, it stops at 3 or 4 p.m. or something.
2: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Or maybe it's ACH. I don't know. All these things are so antiquated except for IBAN.
2: <laughs> yeah, every time it happens, I think that, like, I wonder why our banks don't have IBAN because it seems like a much better system.
0: Um, hint the US banking system is not so advanced. Uh, <laughs> Truth. <laughs> um, so I, um, you know, I travel a bit, and about a year ago, um, I realized, wait a second. When I go to other countries, do I need to get visas to do my training there? <laughs> and something that like became a, a something I should think about because I mean, okay, I have U.S. citizenship, I have Israeli citizenship, fine. I know, like, when I go to China, I have a visa. I actually got a ten-year visa for business to go into China, which is fantastic. Um, it was even more fantastic um, when <laughs> well, I had I had one, and then my and then my passport was basically nullified uh, for all sorts of bureaucratic reasons. So I had to get another 10-year visa. But now this one, I'm going to hold on my passport as long as I can. Um, and so I can go in and out trying to do business. But all of a sudden, I was like, well, do I have to worry about this in Europe or in the UK? And so I actually looked this up, and if you come to the UK to do training for a multinational corporation, you don't need a special work visa. I was like, wow, that's a nice little loophole there. Um, but if you want to visit a country and do business there, you'd better get the right visa. And I don't think any of my clients have ever asked or cared about it because that's, that's my responsibility. And if I'm caught, I don't know, working where I'm not allowed to work, I don't know, let's say I go to Russia to give a course, I don't even know what sort of visa I'd need. But if I didn't have the right one, um, I would probably find out and not in a pleasant way. Mm-hmm. So get the right visa, folks, or check into it at least. Don't be, don't be stupid and naive like I was. <laughs> <laughs> anything else those are the topics i thought of so far anything else that we can think of in terms of all this cross border kind of stuff how do you talk it seems to, to me clients? like with? how do you talk how do you, how do you communicate with how do you communicate with your clients i guess we didn't really discuss that at all though. that might be like a whole uh, um, you know pandora's boxes on its own
2: well i can summarize for myself pretty easily it's pretty much exclusively email and then you know Uh, whatever miscellaneous telecom communication hangouts or Zoom or whatever.
3: Yeah, same. When I've worked uh, for people internationally, it's been mostly email. Um, And then when I've had contractors working for me from overseas, also mainly email with the occasional Skype call or some video chat.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm usually, I mean, mostly email, a little bit of Skype or Zoom um, and just phone. Uh, I mean, I got a US phone number before the whole phone.com thing. I had I a US number on Skype for years and years and years in the theory that, um, you know, for for to, to make it easier for Americans to call me, since they don't seem to know what that plus means at the beginning of a phone number often. <laughs> I, I'm speaking from empirical evidence, like my father who said, So, Reuven, what is that plus before your phone number? I was like, Dad, I've been living in Israel for 15 years. You really don't know? Um, oh, well. Anyway, uh, but no one ever calls it. The only person ever calls my Skype number is actually my sister. So, which is nice. I love talking to her, but it's not like clients are lining up at the door to call it. So I'm not sure how, how important phone is, but I can call them. I sometimes do that. And that, that's actually a a good thing. But yeah, other than that, it's like Skype and Zoom and and just tons of email. Um,
2: Yeah, honestly, for me, um, running a purely remote operation uh, including our employees everything being purely remote uh it's interesting that there's virtually no difference between one of our international clients and a domestic u.s client at least in terms of like logistics and communication the only thing at this point is really the particulars of the bank transaction and beyond that it doesn't make much of a difference
0: good any other tips suggestions thoughts before we move into pix guys
2: not for me.
3: Nope, I got nothing.
0: All right. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you start us off with Pickstep?
3: Uh, So I'll just mention the Chernobyl series again that I mentioned last time. It's really good. Last episode was last night. Uh, so it's only five episodes long, a little over five hours for the whole thing, maybe closer to six. Uh, but uh, easily bingeable if you're into that kind of thing, and really good, very entertaining, very informative. Uh just really well done. I highly recommend it. And that's all I got. Excellent. Eric, what about you?
2: Uh, well, I'll go with a couple of sort of topical ones this week, just because they were the things we've been talking about. And, and my business, Hit Subscribe, uses them um, a little bit on the consuming side, mostly for paying our subcontractors. But I would check out number one is TransferWise. Um, and number two is Zoom as two different uh, services for brokering. International uh, bank transfers that we've had good luck with. Um, so I'll include the links for those. And that's all I've got.
0: All right. So I've got uh, two picks, both of which I mentioned earlier. One of them is T.R. Reed's amazing book called A Fine Mess A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System. Uh, he's a great author. He's a veteran reporter. I think he's with the Washington Post for many, many years. Um, he also has another book about the health the US health system which he wrote a few years ago and this one's about the US tax system and basically he goes around the world comparing tax systems and I know again this sounds incredibly boring I just told someone in my family that I read this book and <laughs> they didn't know whether to mm-hmm. laugh or to cry <laughs> uh, but it's really it's it's really quite interesting and good at figuring out like how do countries collect taxes and why only in the in the US do people need to fill out tax forms and report every year Um, So that's a great book. And the other thing that I'll mention is uh, Aslo Bank, this online bank that I went with, which, by the way, Eric, um, I just double-checked, and they do not charge at all for receiving international or domestic wires. Mm
2: -hmm. Interesting.
0: So yeah, they're set up to be like this hip internet bank. Um, and, And when you sign up with them, they ask you a bunch of questions, one of which is how much of your business takes place in cash? And I think that the only right answer is zero. <laughs> um, like if, if, if you say any other number, they're like, bye-bye. We don't want you. Uh, huh. So, um, so it's def- I've, I've been impressed with everything I've seen with them so far. Again, it's been a very, very short stint with them so far. Um, but I, I, so for example, I needed to send uh, one of my new American clients a letter stating that I had a U.S. bank account. I was like, oh, my God, I got to go to Aslo. I got to contact their service people. And then I saw like this link on their site saying documents. I found documents and it said letter indicating you have an account with us. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I clicked on the link. It downloaded a custom-made PDF that said, you, Reuven Lerner, have an account with us. It is account number blah, 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 blah. It was like, wow, I guess they know people need this letter. (laughs) How amazing. So I've been super impressed so far.
2: It sounds like they got that request once or twice.
0: <laughs> exactly. It's like, we can solve this with software. from uh, No way. Okay. And on that, and on that high note, uh, Jeremy, Eric, thanks very much. And the mystery caller, th- thanks very much for everything. Thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show.
1: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.